In the book of Ruth, we find a story of rather ordinary people doing rather ordinary things in rather ordinary places. But in the midst of all the ordinary, we bear witness to the extraordinary because God is present and active through it all. That is the hope for all of us in this Advent season. Surely God is with us. This content comes from Mercy Village Church in Barbersville, West Virginia, and you can learn more at www.mercyvillage.church. I have two uh, friends. They I didn't know them very well before until I uh, started playing basketball at 5 a.m. every Tuesday and Thursday at River Cities. Um, we hate ourselves. That's why we do that. Um, <laughs> there's two men that have played there, uh, Isaiah more frequently than Eric, but Eric has played there as well. And and if you're familiar with these two two men, and maybe just because there's been uh, so much uh, information and prayer and celebration of what God's done spread about them across uh, Facebook and social media. Maybe you didn't even know who they were before, but you've come to know their story in the past weeks or so. Um, Isaiah and Eric both go to, to River Cities uh, there, and Eric was a, uh, well, still is uh, a doctor. Isaiah is just a, a blue collar worker, but Isaiah's liver was being ate up with cancer. And so in that, right, um, things took a huge nosedive for his family and for those around him. It came to the point where the only chance he had was to have a working liver uh, given to him. And by God's rich providence and grace and kindness, and with a little bit of just irony, uh, that transplant came from within the body of Christ where he goes to church. It came from Isaiah. It was a match. And so if you know these folks and you've seen it transpire over the past couple weeks, you see that they took 60% of Isaiah's liver out. Um, they needed more of his. Um, that's a joke about his liver not being good. <laughs> they took 60% of his liver out and put it in Eric, and so far, so good. And so obviously our prayer is that Eric has a long and healthy life ahead of him and that Isaiah has a long and healthy life ahead of him. But there's a point to why I tell this story today. I tell it because I think it helps illustrate what I mean today by the word privilege, which is right there in the the title of the sermon. There's also this Hebrew word, hesed, which means loyal love, if you haven't been with us. Loyal love, hesed, leverages privilege for others. That word has gotten a little bit politically charged, though, in the last decade. The word privilege, right? It gets attached to whiteness and maleness. And I'm not here today to tell you that there's not privileges of, of being a man or there's not privileges uh, historically in our country of, of being white. But what I want us to see is not necessarily what everyone else's privileges are, but to see what our privileges are. To think about that intentionally today. What blessings, talents, skills, opportunities, experiences has God given you that are privileges to you, opportunities to you that can now be leveraged for others? And I thought with Isaiah and Eric's story, right? Like the privilege was a very common one. He had a working liver. It's a very common privilege. But one that many of us would take for granted. He leveraged the privilege of a working liver for the good of others. I want us to think 
creatively and intentionally today about what the privileges are that we have because loyal love that comes from God leverages privilege and opportunity for the good of others and for the glory of God. We're going to see that play out today in Boaz's life. We've seen it play out through the entire book of Ruth. We'll see it in particular with Boaz as we move into Ruth chapter 4 today. Father, today what we know not, please teach us. What we are not, please make us. And what we have not, please give us. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. We left Ruth with Naomi last week. Remember, there was a rendezvous in the middle of the night. Ruth came to Boaz in the barley field and said, I want you to spread your wing over me. Which he had said previously in chapter 2 is the love that Yahweh had given to her. That she had put herself up under the wings of, of Yahweh. And that by coming with Naomi back from Moab to Bethlehem. And there in that place, she had received generosity, kindness from Boaz, who was a relative to her late husband, Milan. And he was in a position to generously bless her beyond what he had already done. To generously uh, help not only Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law, but to help Ruth as well. And so in last week's In chapter 3, last week, we saw Ruth come to him and say, will you redeem me? Will you marry me? But not just me. It's a package deal. If you redeem me, I want you to serve and love Naomi as well. Remember that covenant she made to to Naomi? Ruth did. Where you go, I will go. Uh, Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. This has driven Ruth through this this whole story. He says to Boaz, I want you to marry me, but not unless you promise to take care of Naomi as well. And Boaz says, I'll do it. He responds to it. And when we left them last week, Boaz had sent Ruth back to Naomi with about 80-some pounds of barley, by the way. So Ruth's, you know, she's a CrossFit woman. She takes it back. And there Naomi expresses her confidence. She replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Naomi was confident that Boaz would fulfill his promise to look after both Ruth and Naomi. Now, we talked last week, her confidence was not exclusively in just Boaz and his abilities. It was in the loyal love of God that was on display in Boaz's life. So Boaz immediately goes to fulfill his promise. Now, what you'll see for Boaz is that he had some privilege. He had some unique privileges that he is going to leverage for the good of Ruth and for Naomi. We've already seen some of them. You have no idea what patriarchy is. You really don't, unless you lived when Ruth lived. We throw that word around now, but it's nothing like what it was then. There are some third world places or some places you can travel in this world where it still is like that. But Boaz was a man in a society that was dominated by patriarchy, dominated by it. He had the privilege of being a man in that culture, distinct, numerous privileges because of he was a man. Not only that, but he was a property owner. Not everyone had that privilege of owning property. He did. He may not have been the richest man. Some of the clues in 
and Ruth. He wasn't like top dog in Bethlehem, but he was doing fine. He had wealth. He had property. He was a leader. He had authority over others. That was another privilege that he had. There were people he influenced, uh, those who worked under him uh, in his fields. And then he was respected in the community. That was a privilege that he had as well. He was considered a worthy man by those in Bethlehem. What we'll also see today is not only was he respected, but he was also connected in the community. He was networked. See, these are different types of privileges that some of us might have. The list could go on for Boaz. The list for each of us might be different in some very unique and specific ways, but he had these privileges. Some of them were earned. He'd put blood, sweat, and tears into to earning them. Some of them were unearned. He was born as a man in a patriarchal society. He didn't earn that, but he had that privilege. It was, was given to him. Some of them were a combination of both, but get this. He wasn't ashamed of his privilege. He doesn't walk around saying, woe is me. I'm so sorry that I'm that I own property. I'm so sorry that I'm well to do. I'm so sorry that I have authority. He's not apologetic for it, but he's also not apathetic to it. He knows that he has it. He's aware of what that privilege, those privileges that he has make possible for him to do for others. And so he leverages that, he owns it, and he goes straight to the city gate and he begins to leverage the privileges, the skills, the talents, the gifts that he has for the sake of others. Now, Boaz had gone up to the gate. That's where all the legal action, all the town gossip, all the heralding of any news, all of that would have happened at the gate to Bethlehem. He heads up there, he sat down, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken. Remember, Boaz said, I'll redeem you, but there's one person in front of me in line. There's somebody who's nearer to you, who can redeem you, Ruth, as his, as his wife, and redeem Naomi's field so that her, uh, she can be provided for. So he sees that man right off the bat, and if you've been with us through this entire book, you know that's not coincidence. That's providence. That's God at work making sure that that meeting is able to take place and transpire when it does. He came by, Boaz said to him, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and and sat down. Boaz is not dragging his feet and he's not going to take any shortcuts either. He took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. He's not going to handle this in some uh, under the table way, some backroom deal. He gets 10 elders to sit there and watch it all transpire. He doesn't drag his feet. He doesn't take any shortcuts and he deals with honesty. You'll see also he deals with shrewdness here in just a second, but he deals with honesty. Then he said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling a parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not tell me that I may know, for there is no one beside you to redeem it, and I come after you. So he tells him the truth. He tells him all the facts. He lays it out there for him, even though, as you'll see in the very next words, it's going to cost him, at least temporarily, the thing that he desires the most. He deals with honesty. The Redeemer in front of him said to him, I will redeem it. He says, all right. Thanks for sharing this with me, Boaz. I'll take care of it. I'll buy the field. And at this moment, it's not looking good for Boaz. At this moment, it's not looking good for Ruth. But Boaz isn't finished. 
Boaz has more to say. Boaz is going to move on in the conversation. But before he does, I want us to stop and think for a second. And maybe even this week, if you have some free time, I know this is a chaotic season in life, maybe in the stillness of the morning or whenever it is that you maybe spend time reading the Bible or in prayer or whatever, list out, when I say privilege, I mean skills, talents, opportunities. What are those for you? What do you have that God has given to you that you can leverage for other people? My wife and I have the privilege of having authority and influence over four young people in our home. That's an opportunity. That's a privilege. I may not have influence over a whole bunch of other people, but I do over them. How am I leveraging that for their good and for the glory of of God. I have the undeserved, quite frankly, privilege of standing up here, opening the Bible, preaching the word. I do not take that for granted. That privilege that I have to do that. How am I going to leverage that for the good of others and the glory of God? Believe it or not, been around long enough, you know that people who stand behind these pulpits don't automatically leverage that privilege for the glory of God and the good of others. So I pray that I will always be faithful to that. But the list could go on of ways that I have privilege, skills, talents, gifts that have been given to me that I can leverage for others. Where is your influence? Where's your authority? Where's your security? Maybe security that sets you free, right? Financial stability that maybe uh, gives you the opportunity to bless others. Take that as your homework this week. List those things out specifically. What is it that you have that puts you at the advantage of being able to help others and bring glory to God? And then like Boaz, don't drag your feet, right? Maybe you're already doing it, but you're thinking of other creative ways you can engage in loving others and bringing glory to God through the gifts that he's given you. Maybe you you are seeing ways that you're failing and and there's ways that you need to engage. Like Boaz, go immediately and, and, and begin. Boaz isn't done with this conversation, though. He has an opportunity here. He doesn't just have these privileges, these skills. He also is going to have an opportunity. Boaz said, and he's being shrewd here. He's he's going to talk to this. He's bringing up this fact second for a reason. Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, right, you're going to get the land, but you're also going to have to take the girl. You acquire Ruth, the Moabite the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. So this is a package deal. You don't get the field without Ruth. You have to take both. Boaz is up to something here. He's, he's, he's uh, being shrewd. He's being honest, yes, but he's also being shrewd in the way that he delivers this. And I'm going to get into why, because there's an opportunity that Boaz has had that it seems that this Redeemer has not. Boaz has had this super interesting opportunity that you kind of have to read between the lines to see. As Boaz has grown up from boyhood to manhood, he's done so in a multi-ethnic family. He's done so around women who are risky and courageous and willing to give up themselves for the sake of the kingdom in courageous and brave ways. 
And it would appear, and this part's speculation, that this man there in the town square had some hesitation with the race of Ruth. Boaz hasn't called her the Moabite once this entire book. He was aware she was a Moabite. Everyone else has been talking about it. But for him, that was not the only part of her story. Her story is multifaceted, and her race, the place she comes from, is a part of it, but it's not all of it. And that doesn't draw him back at all. He truly loves Ruth. He has been, uh, right, remember Peter in the, uh, the book of Galatians, when the Gentiles come to Galatia, he draws back and refuses to eat with them. But remember Boaz in chapter 2, he's handing her his drinking glass and letting her drink from it. He's passing the plate around to her at lunchtime and and eating with her regardless of her ethnic background. There's a reason for that. Boaz has had an opportunity based on his genealogy. There's two interesting names. We're kind of skipping forward. You have to forgive me for this. But the very end of Ruth, there's a genealogy. There's two names that surface in that genealogy. One is Perez and one is Salmon. And they reveal a beautiful reality about Boaz. First, Perez. Perez was the son of a woman named Tamar. Do you remember her? Anybody? There was two of them. One was a daughter to David. There was one before her named Tamar. Earmuffs, right? Because her story's wild. It's like Game of Thrones up in here. Tamar marries Judah's son. Judah is one of the patriarchs of the 12 tribes of Israel. He's born to Jacob. He has sons. Tamar marries one of them. But then he dies. And when he dies, Tamar has no children. And just as we talked about in chapter 2, there was a Levitical requirement. There was a law that now Tamar's dead husband... That dead husband's brother was responsible now to care for Tamar. To to provide for her not only stability, but also to provide for her a future heir. But, this is the earmuffs part, and one of the weirdest verses in the Bible, Onan continues to spill his seed on the ground. Right? You didn't know that was in your Bible, maybe, but it is. He refused to give her a child. And so Tamar is sitting there childless. She needs a redeemer and there is no redeemer. She's likely a Canaanite, a foreign woman, and she is alone, childless, uncared for. And her father-in-law, Judah, the patriarch, right? This will be the line of Jesus, refuses to do anything about it. So she tricks him. She pretends to be a prostitute by the side of the road and And Judah, the upstanding man that he is, takes advantage. She takes a pledge from him. Everything comes round. In the end, it's Tamar, his own (laughs) daughter-in-law. Told you it's like Game of Thrones, right? You don't need Game of Thrones. Read Read the Old Testament. It's nuts. But in that, God makes a way for Tamar to be cared for, for her to have a child, and that child will be the great, 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 great grandpa of Boaz. If that doesn't happen for Tamar, you don't get Boaz. But in his line, 
is this Canaanite Gentile woman who the people in her life refused to redeem, but God took care of her. Fast forward, you come to a name of another man named Salmon. Remember him? Anybody? He's a little less well-known. Husband of Rahab. Remember her in Jericho? When the walls came tumbling down, there was strangely one part of the wall that stayed standing, had a scarlet cord hanging out the window. Inside that home lived a former prostitute named Rahab. God welcomed her into the family. Right? Imperfect as she was, an outsider ethnically, he welcomed her into the kingdom. That's Boaz's mom, according to the genealogy. Now, to be fair, genealogies sometimes in Scripture, and you got to know this, they just kind of hit the highlights, right? And the audience in that day would have known that this may or may not be a literal, exact genealogy to the very generation. So maybe it's his grandma. Rahab, maybe his grandma, maybe his great-grandma, but this is his family line. Foreigners welcomed in to the kingdom, a front-row seat to God redeeming widows when the community fails to do it. Front-row seat to people of other classes and backgrounds being received into the kingdom. A front-row seat to women that take initiative and seek justice and good for others and take risks For the kingdom, all while being gentle and humble, this was the gift and opportunity of Boaz's life. He saw it. With his very own eyes, he lived in that environment. And so when he sees Ruth, a foreign Moabite, with no redeemer, he doesn't even bat an eye. I like to think the scarlet cord is still hanging in his home as a reminder of what God can do. Speculation. But this is his story. And so that opportunity, right? Your past is an opportunity. Your past has taught you things, some of them hard lessons. I get that. But even those hard lessons, painful lessons, those losses are opportunities for you to now be able to invest in the lives of others for the glory of God. Some of the things in your past are beautiful things. They also are opportunities for you to now invest in others as the people of God. And so Boaz gets another opportunity. And because of that first opportunity, the way he was raised, the opportunity of his childhood, he's ready to take the second opportunity. The Redeemer, the first one, said, I cannot redeem it for myself lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself for I cannot redeem. And in that, Boaz has now the opportunity to redeem uh, Naomi's land and to redeem Ruth to be his wife. This other redeemer serves as a contrast, by the way, kind of like Orpah in chapter one. She's not condemned for going back to Moab, but she serves as this contrast for all the, the loyal love that's about to pour out of Ruth. And this redeemer also shirks his responsibility. And his reason is actually a little bit selfish. He doesn't want to impair his own inheritance, right? If he brings Ruth into his family and Ruth has a child or, God forbid, multiple children, then his inheritance, the pieces of the pie, are getting cut up tinier and tinier and tinier. And he don't want that. She says, no. 
He's going to build a taller fence, not a, not a longer table. My wife got this sign for our dining room. It says, when you have more than you need, build a longer table, not a taller fence. Boaz is ready to build a longer table. So the, the, the question for us then is, is, what are your opportunities, right? Like keep thinking about that list that, Lord willing, you're going to take time to consider in, in this coming week or weeks to come. What are your opportunities? What are your privileges that you, that you have? How can you show loyal love to others? Do you find yourself in a neighborhood or a job or a network of relationships and you have open doors to bless specific people? to engage specific people. Think about what those are. Boaz is ready to do that. And so in the wake of the unnamed Redeemer's refusal to redeem, Boaz is going to leverage both his privilege and his opportunity for the good of Ruth and Naomi. Now this was the custom in former times, verses 7 and 8, in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one... This would be the one who had the rights to the property, redeemer number one, drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. (laughs) That's disgusting, but uh, it works, right? So he takes off his sandal and he hands it to Boaz and says, this is the sign that I am relinquishing my rights to Naomi's field and to Ruth um, as my wife, and I'm giving it to you. This was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. And now Boaz has this sandal in his hand in the city gate. The crowd is gathered, I guarantee you by now. It's not just 10 people anymore. There are probably a whole bunch of people there hungry for the gossip and hungry for the, hungry for the info. And Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day, that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belong to Elimelech, all that belong to Jalon, and all that belong to Milan to Chilion and to Milan. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Milan, I have uh, bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in, uh, in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Long story short, he's going to leverage his privilege and opportunity for the good of Naomi. Ruth, he's going to care for them. But he's already been doing this. The reader in the story should not be surprised by the actions of Boaz. That's why Naomi was confident at the end of chapter 3. He's leveraged his privilege already, generously giving back to her. Last week we talked about how he would have faced the question every year, how big are my corners? The the Levitical law said you will leave the corners of your field and the edges of your field for the poor and the needy. But it never said how big they need to be. Right? Right? He could have made some really tiny corners, right? Or frame this out real, this with a a hairline frame, right? That'll be good. He had to face that question, how big are my corners? And he acts generously on behalf of those in need. His corners are large and he welcomes Naomi in and and he gives her to her generously. He takes care of Naomi and Ruth. But also remember, Ruth and Naomi have done the same thing, right? Boaz is not the superstar in this story, Jesus is. God is the star of this story, okay? But Boaz is not the only human star of this story. Ruth is the namesake of this book. 
Naomi and Ruth take up the vast majority of this book as women, right? She's done as much as a kinsman redeemer without the title as Boaz will do. She has. She doesn't get the title of kinsman redeemer, but she takes the actions of one in the way she cares for Naomi, the way she looks after her. They have taken their knowledge, the privilege of knowledge of how the system works, and they have leveraged it for the good of one another. They, they, Ruth, right? She's able-bodied. She's young. She's strong. We've seen evidence of that in, in the book, and she leverages that privilege for the sake of Naomi, her aging mother-in-law. Ruth also, at one point in the story, although both of them could, uh, were battling with loss, Naomi found herself in a place of deep brokenness and depression. She couldn't even get out of bed in the morning. Ruth found herself in a better place just by grace, not because she's some stronger person, but because by God's grace, she found herself in a position, as anyone who's battled with depression knows, it comes in waves. And while Naomi was down, Ruth was at least steady. And Ruth took advantage of that privilege that she had of being stable in that moment. And she leveraged it to help lift Naomi out of her depression. They've leveraged their privilege as well. They've leveraged their opportunities So don't get caught up in stereotypical ideas about what privilege is. It's not just money. It's not just gender. It's not just ethnicity. All of us have unique privileges, each our own, that we can leverage for the people of God, for the good of our community, and for the glory of God. What are yours? I challenge you to list them out this week. Because leveraging privilege and opportunity for the good of others and the glory of God is worth celebrating. And that's exactly how this passage that we're looking at today ends. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses, we've seen it. And then they, they have some blessings that they offer. They say, may the Lord make the, the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. Rachel and Leah were wives to Jacob Okay? He got tricked into marrying uh, Leah by, his, uh, by Laban, and then he waited so that he could marry Rachel. And a lot of what we see in Scripture is their spats with each other, how they didn't like one another, and how their, their uh, relationship was tumultuous. But, but God used both of them to build the house of Israel, to build the family of God. And in a way, they're echoing to Naomi. They're saying the two of you, unlike Unlike Rachel and Leah, our friends, you love each other, you care for each other, but there's two of you, and might the two of you be used to grow the house of God? And then they bless Boaz. May you, Boaz, act worthily, worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. Might this worthy behavior continue for you? We should be praying that for one another, by the way. That any evidence of faithfulness to God that we see amongst the body of Christ here at Mercy Village Church and beyond, that that'll continue. That it won't be here today and gone tomorrow, but that that will continue. They ask that blessing. They, they, they make that blessing upon him. May you continue to act worthily and be renowned in Bethlehem because if Boaz is renowned for acting worthily, God will be renowned. Because he will be acting in connection and in coherence to what God has called him to. And here's Perez and Tamar. May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, 
because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. We're going to see it get even better next week, this genealogy. God is at work, right, on every birth of a new child all the way up to Boaz, and he's going to keep being at work all the way past him. And he says, might you have offspring as well. The, the, the people say, might you have offspring as well. And might God continue to show himself faithful through them. They celebrate. Leveraging privilege and opportunity for the good of others and the glory of God is worth celebrating. But what about when we fail to leverage our privilege and our opportunity? I did this week, surprise, surprise. Surprise, surprise, it happened in the drop-off line at school. I have the privilege, the opportunity to have four young people in the back of my car. Instead of lifting the burdens off of my children as they began to go out into the world for the next several hours of their day, I piled on guilt and shame with ill-timed and ill-toned words as we sat in the drop-off line. I did, man. I was right, too. I told them the truth, but hear me. I told them the truth by flexing my privilege. I told them the truth while beating my chest, right? Not literally, but figuratively. So they couldn't hear me. And then I drove by DeRose and acted like everything was fine, right? That night I did the same thing to my wife. It was a bad day. I had the opportunity to serve her. She wanted me to, to do something for her, and instead I shamed her for not serving me the way I wanted to be served. I was harsh. Mean. What about when I fail, right? If the point is for us to receive the loyal love of God and then spill it out to others, what about when we don't? I need a Savior. I need Advent. I need Jesus. You do too. And that's the good news. You see, Jesus had privilege, man. He was God. All the power, all the cosmic powers of God were His. The guy could, Jesus, the man, our Lord, could speak worlds into existence. (laughs) Truly. Or this is false. That was his power. He sat in the throne room of God. Angels bowed and worshipped him. Everything that was God's was his. He is God, a full-fledged member of the Trinity, Jesus. But, Paul says in Philippians, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This is Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped and held on to and leveraged for himself. But he made himself, he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. He leveraged his privilege, his power, his strength, his opportunity. He had opportunity. 
to die for the sins of the world. And in in the Garden of Gethsemane, remember him there? He withdrew from them about a stone's throw and and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. It's going to be hard to seize this opportunity to die for the sins of the world. Is there any other way? Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Like Boaz, Jesus leverages his privilege and opportunity to make us his bride and to seal our inheritance forever. (laughs) That's Advent right there. That's how this comes back to Jesus. And if you're not a Christian, trust Jesus today. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll be saved. He leveraged his privilege for you at the cross He died in the place of sinners like you and sinners like me. All the wrath of God against sin poured out on Jesus there on the cross. And he died and he was buried. And three days later, he raised to life. And he says, believe in me and you'll be saved. All the privilege and all the opportunities that come from God can be yours by faith in Jesus. Child of God. Yes, do the homework this week. List out your privileges. List out your opportunities. That's great. But that can also come with maybe some guilt, some heavy burden. Oh, man, all this opportunities blown. I'm such an idiot. Right? And I say that with a laugh, but I've felt the guilt. I felt the shame. So number two, and the far more important thing that I want to leave you with today is linger at the manger this Christmas. That baby boy is going to leverage every ounce of privilege he has. He's going to leverage every ounce of opportunity he has so that one day as a grown man on his way to the cross, he can say, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He's going to say, my leveraging of my privilege and my leveraging of my opportunity is good enough. Okay? Come to me. Find rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You yoke up next to Jesus. It's actually how you were designed to live. It's actually the freest place you can be. And in that place, you'll start to look like Jesus. You'll start to act like Jesus, because if you're yoked up with Jesus, you're going where he's going. But you're kind of like the the little kid whose feet are barely touching the ground right as you go. Man, life is there. Joy is there. Hope is there. And you'll find yourself, by God's rich grace, becoming a person who now leverages your privilege and opportunity more and more for the good of others. And you'll look back and say, man, that wasn't me that did that. I didn't have to gut it out. I didn't have to, like, you know, be a better person and just really work hard at it. Jesus did that in me. He did it. That's the promise of Advent. That you can linger at the manger and feel your burdens melt away. That you can linger at the manger and feel your guilt and shame melt away. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So when you fail to leverage your opportunities and you fail to leverage your privilege, there's no guilt, there's no shame. Jesus took it at the cross. But yoke up with Jesus at the manger and go again. And when you fail, yoke up again and go again. He will empower you and he will be with you. We will be people, right? The loyal love that comes from God leverages privilege and opportunity for the good of others and the glory of God. And yoked up with Jesus, that love is yours.
And that love is life to the full. Father, no words can give any justice to this message. I pray that we will not leave here in guilt, but that we will leave here inspired, right, to receive from you all of the privilege and opportunity that has been leveraged through grace upon our lives and that as that spills over from us, we don't have to self-generate. Generate from within this loyal love for others. Might it spill out of us as just a way of life as we take your yoke upon you, on us, and learn from you. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. You can subscribe to this feed wherever you listen to podcasts. We exist to experience and embody redemption and renewal in Christ alone, and we'd love for you to experience what God is doing as Jesus builds Mercy Village Church. Connect with us online at www.mercyvillage.church.